собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB podcast. In each episode, we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page, at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. This week's podcast is the fourth of five events for Nature's Revenge, Ecology, Animals, and Waste in Eurasia, the spring 2021 speaker series at the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. Industrial commodity production has exponentially increased the number of things to be bought, sold, and consumed. But waste is left in the wake of every created and consumed thing. The problem of trash, what to do with it, where to put it, and how to process and even reuse it is one of the fundamental problems of modern society. Here is Alana Resnick and Viktor Paul on trash and the multiple challenges in dealing with it in Eastern Europe. Alana Resnick is an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She is currently working on a book manuscript about waste and race in Europe based on over three years of fieldwork on Bulgarian city streets, in landfills, Romani neighborhoods, executive offices, and at the Ministry of the Environment. You can get a taste of her research in a forthcoming piece in the American Anthropologist entitled the limits of resilience, managing waste in the racialized Anthropocene. Victor Paul is a researcher at the Department of Cultures at the University of Helsinki in Finland. He also serves as coordinator at the Helsinki Environmental Humanities Hub. His first book, Technology and the Environment in State Socialist Hungary, an Economic History, was published in 2017 by Palgrave Macmillan. Here is Alana Resnick and Victor Paul. So, uh, just to start our conversation about trash, um, I'd, I'd like to have you briefly introduce the focus of your research. Alana, you want to start? Um, so, my research is about the intersection of waste and race. So my research actually looks at environmental sustainability initiatives as themselves um, racial projects. So it's a lot of work that deals with waste and race often talks about issues of environmental injustice, environmental racism, and that is a very important and foundational part of my project. Um, I work a lot with Romani communities in Bulgaria, but... My research focuses more on the actual labor it takes to clean up um, Bulgaria, focusing on the city of Sofia. And this is incredibly important in this particular moment because it is critical that Bulgaria meet EU recycling and waste management targets. And so I look at the labor of what it takes to do that, to meet those targets, that is critical for Bulgaria to become so-called European. And the labor of that is predominantly done by Roma. And in my research, I focused on Romani women who were collecting waste, recycling it, and sweeping Sophia's streets. And so what I do is I really look at how these environmental sustainability initiatives themselves kind of couched in the terms of green progressivism actually re-entrench and um, create new regimes or new systems of racialization, white supremacy, racial oppression. And what got you interested in this? Like, why trash? So the trash part of my research actually came second. I've been always very interested in um, racial justice and issues of human rights. And I actually went to Bulgaria when I was 19. And I was working for a uh, Romani educational desegregation organization. And I became very interested in the 
emerging pre-EU accession, this was in 2003, so it was before Bulgaria joined the EU in 2007, this pre-accession civil rights movement that was developing. And then I went to grad school, I had this great project planned, and I came back in 2008, and all of the NGOs and the, the organizations and activists I had worked with were no longer doing the work that I was expecting them to do because there was this shift where funding um, stopped once Bulgaria joined the European Union. George Soros pulled out, uh, foreign governments from Western Europe pulled out, and suddenly Bulgaria was reliant on EU funds. And EU funds come through a national government. The national government in Bulgaria was um, couched in its own issues of racism. So... I ended up just sitting on city streets, sitting on the benches, being like, what is my project? And one of the most prominent spaces that Romani people were prevalent in Sofia was collecting waste. And I started sort of wondering, like, why is this such a racialized job sector? Both the informal, I mean, the terms informal and formal are sort of um, false constructs, but people who are collecting going through bins and collecting recyclables and court in carts and in um, horse carts, but also people who were wearing uniforms employed by the government to sweep streets. Almost all of them were Romani workers, and a lot were women. And Victor, how about you? What is your research focused on? Uh, my current project is about recycling in cold war in Europe. Um, but the original plan before COVID was to focus on the Soviet Union, but now uh, we cannot really go there. You cannot really travel to the archives. So by the time I got my visa to enter Russian Federation, you know, a couple of weeks later, the borders were closed and they remain closed. So I had to kind of figure what to do with that. And so I, I managed to get to Estonia, that was a Soviet Republic, and I found some very promising materials. So my current project is about recycling of bottles, but I would like to extend it to recycling of you know, paper, cardboard, metals, feather, bones, clothes, textiles, really anything and everything that was recycled by uh, the communists in Eastern Europe. Uh, they call it the, um, the industry of secondary materials. And um, well, it, it depended on the country where did this industry belong, but mostly it was part of the light, the Ministry of Light Industries throughout uh, Eastern Europe. And um, it built up as, a, from, a, from very modest beginnings, it, it built up into a relatively huge sector by the 1970s. And I'm very excited about these state companies and, and their arguments and credits and discussions and and um, the state campaigns that were organized and, and these various state initiatives that, um, that tells the story of how state socialism related to its discards and how it how these regimes aim to recycle various kind of materials. What drew you to trash to this subject? So I was born and raised in Hungary. And uh, and I was a kid uh, when it was still a quasi-communist regime. It was very liberal, of course. So yeah, um, there were TV, <laughs> you know, TV sets and Western sneakers and Coca-Cola and all that. But Coca-Cola was sold only in recyclable uh, glass bottles. But anyway, so I... I my family was recycling a lot, and I think it was pretty normal and standard at the time. We lived in a suburban area, and so we were recycling glass jars and packaging and boxes and newspaper, and uh, we would fix clothes and shoes and a lot of things. Not everything, of course, but a lot of things. Of course, there were plastic um, packaging and, and tools that we were using, but most of the things that I remember from my childhood, they were repairable or reusable or recyclable in some ways. And then I, I moved to Finland in 2003. And, and even though Finland has a, a very positive reputation as a environmentally friendly country, when you look into the statistics, you see a more, more multifaceted picture, of course. Um, and I realized that, okay, so this country that's supposed to be very green and super recycling is producing a lot of waste that is partly un invisible, but partly visible to, to anyone, to a, to a student. And then in 2010, I moved to California for a, for a year abroad. And then there I just, you know, I just, I was really shocked <laughs> for some time. And, 
And so I think I just want to tell this historical story that is um, is yet to be told because there's a lot on, on the history of waste, especially in the North American context. There is decades of, of literature and, and scholarship, excellent scholarship about this uh, topic. But in the East, I really should hurry up if I if I would like to be one of the first ones to tell this state socialist story. Yeah. Um, you know, so so much of like, you know, there's so much scholarship uh, on in, in during the communist period uh, about the communist period in terms of consumption and how much Eastern Europeans in the Soviet Union and how much is consumption. And even in our you know present day capital, capitalist society, it's just fully bent on consumption. And the consciousness of trash and waste has certainly arisen uh, in the last decade or two. Um, and recycling. I mean, now it seems like every tra- every house, at least in my neighborhood, has a recycling can. But what about in in? I'd like to have you both talk a bit about uh, the so like recycling and trash and how it was dealt with in the socialist period. Uh, Alana, would you like to start? So I'm going to kind of give you um, my take on the socialist period that's coming out of my archival research I'm actually doing right now. So this is very much a work in progress. Um, for a lot of my historical references, I, I really like reading the work of um, Juja Gile, the sociologist. I think her work is really formative and interesting um, for my own. And one of the key things that she talks about that's super relevant for my project was about these ideas of state socialist recycling were not just about um, this ideological greening, but were compulsory in some ways. And there was this freedom to discard that came with the changes in 1989, 1990. And that's something that comes up a lot in my own research was people throwing things out and they're like, we're free now. This is what we can do. And in some of my research, I, I don't focus particularly on the socialist period. I'm just starting to do that. But I focus a lot on these on those transition years. There's a lot of information about how um, increased waste was actually seen by a lot of the um, Eastern European governments as something that was good because it was a sign of economic development. So these priorities start to shift and these priorities are international. So in order to join whatever union it is and to become, I mean, there's always this looking ahead to becoming European. At first it was about, great, waste is good because that shows you are privatizing and that shows that you are becoming more capitalist. Then it starts to shift as it as EU accession comes closer and it's no longer about in a quantity of waste as a sign of progress, but about reducing waste as a sign of progress. So these sh- these kind of shifts in the historical relationships of people to waste are very much um, markers of what progress means and how that keeps getting reshaped culturally and historically. Um, in my art. I'm doing some archival research now, and I'm looking at waste um, labor practices during socialism. And what I'm finding in Bulgaria was that it was really hard to find waste laborers. So even during socialism, most waste laborers were Roma. But in the archival records, it's very hard to determine um, ethnicity or race because Bulgaria had a total assimilation policy in which they didn't record these things. And this is still prevalent in demographic studies in Bulgaria. You can't easily find these things out. But I'm looking through these, kind of combing through the archives, and what I'm finding is that the government was trying to appeal to young men from the countryside to try to get them into Sofia, to clean Sofia's waste, because this was a real important part of what it meant to urbanize, was to have clean streets for all of the parades and all of the dignitaries from other countries who would come. You need to have these very clean streets. And this was the aesthetics of what urbanization meant relied on this labor that was really hard to get in Bulgaria. So what I'm looking now at is um, the pay scale. And what I'm finding is that a lot of waste laborers were actually making a really good wage during socialism. And this is one of the biggest shifts that in from the uh, socialist to the post-socialist period was the, shape, the shift in the kind of the political economy of waste and its labor. Wow. That's, that's so it's fascinating. If- I mean, particularly this change, this ideological change in relationship to waste, one's relationship to waste, like in one hand, you know, it's compulsory recycling, and then now it's a sign of freedom. And then now it's a sign, you know, getting or recycling is now a sign of being European. It's, it's, it's you know, something I, I certainly hadn't considered. Victor, what, what can what about in what you've studied in terms of, and also as your own personal experience, what was the, the idea of, of waste and recycling in, in under communism? It's about pollution, most of, mostly. 
but um, but pollution was intertwined with the problematique of trash and waste. And so what I noticed during that research project, that was my PhD project, was that um, trash was a problem and an obsession. And uh, so why, why was that? I, I think there may be two reasons, is that communism claims to be inherently mo more efficient than capitalism because everything is organized from uh, central sources, think tanks, who are creating this amazing and complex central plan and all the units, all the, all the companies are operating according to this very complex plan. But because it's so well organized and it's so, I mean, this is all theory, of course, we know, because it's so well organized and it's so centralized and uh, the state has almost absolute power in theory, um, communism must prove that it's less wasteful than capitalism. But we know that this didn't happen, right? So the other, the other reason that I found and the other um, explanation that is, is very plausible, that many of these Eastern European countries, I mean, probably the Czech and the Moravian parts of Czechoslovakia, they do not really count they, because they were um, two of the most developed economic areas in, in Europe um, until the end of the 1960s. And parts of East Germany were also very developed in, in economic sense. But most of Eastern Europe that is occupied by uh, the Red Army or in controlled by the Soviet Union. They used to be the poorer parts of Europe. In economic history, they call it the backyard of Europe. It's a very degradatory name for that, right? So these countries are poor. They are starting up as poor. They do not accept the Marshall Plan. So they have to rely on Soviet help, which is... You know, you can imagine how big it, that is. And so they need everything they can to utilize and to start to build up their imaginary, amazing industries. And so secondary industries come into this play as very big players, not immediately. They start to build up gradually. We do not really have a very nuanced understanding of that. Gila's book is very important. Of course, I've used it in my research. And uh, she is talking about a chemical plant, her major case study is a chemical plant in Budapest. I actually lived, used to live about a year or two next to that chemical plant. So there is a personal connection to that. But even, even Gilles' work is, you know, it's a work of a sociologist, not a historian. So we need to have a more nuanced understanding. How did it happen? Uh, how did these, by the 1970s, very complex industries did build up during, during those decades, Cold War decades? In our well, I'll speak for myself personally. In my con how I conceive of trash, right? It's dirty. Of course, it's disposable. You have to put it somewhere. It has to go in a particular place, right? You have to separate, you know, dirt from cleanliness, et cetera, et cetera. But in 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 your research proposal and what you sent me, Victor, you write you start with the statement: nothing is inherently trash. Um, talk about what you mean by that and, and its importance to how you're doing your work. Well, Sean, I, I don't really want to dig in your uh, trash bin, but who, who is deciding what goes into the bin and what goes into the recycling bin that now Americans have and what, and what do you keep? Who's deciding uh, in, in your house? In my house? I mean, it's kind of a collective effort, I guess, but I guess me and my partner are deciding. So humans, right? And this is, yeah, this is very important. So trash making, and this is not my view, it has been written in English in several dozens of excellent, eminent books. Um, so trash making is very complex. It's a, it's a culture and technological process. So, and, and both of those denominations, they, they are inherently human. They are, uh, they are intertwined with the human existence. So in most ways, and I could say in, in almost always or always, is the humans who determine what counts as waste and and how they want to deal with it, how they want to manage it. So if I just can give you probably the most inherent human trash, that is human waste, and how we deal with it, how we manage that, that problem that has been with us since we have been humans. It tells a lot about our cultures and our, our technological processes, that you invent a water closet and then you use toilet paper and then you use heck a lot of energy to supply the water and then clean it up and then discharge it 
And it's a very, very complex technological system. It could be in many other ways how it's being dealt with. It's not the only possibility. There, are, there could be a, a million other ways to, to deal with this problem. But this is how, in many countries, especially in Western countries, this problem, problem is being dealt with. I mean, I think this is like these foundational kind of work on trash, even thinking, you know, I'm, I'm not a historian, but thinking, you know, back to Mary Douglas and some of the anthropologists of this. Um, I think this is, uh, you know, it's been debated in a lot of different work. And I think my take on it is not to really get into those debates, but um, of like how it is trash. But I'm, I'm very interested in how basically who gets to just throw things out and who has to deal with it later. So that's sort of this article that I have coming out about why the Anthropocene is like inherently racialized is that so many of us just get to like, you know, I have this tissue right here. I get to like blow my nose and throw it out and I never have to deal with it again. And then what I saw in Bulgaria was like these really racialized differences between who gets to just kind of imagine that they're throwing it into the void and no one gets to has to touch it. And then the, the workers who actually are always dealing with trash and their relationships to trash are very different because they don't get to just throw things out and never see it again. If they throw it out in their trash can, they're probably going to have to work with it tomorrow in some way or another. So this is a very kind of, it's not just, you know, this idea of the Anthropocene is based on Anthropos, the human, but the human is itself, you know, this hierarchically um, designated and differentiated kind of um, group of people and it's political. So I'm sort of focused on that element of it. It's really fascinating because it does say something about, you know, that what we throw away can serve as a way to map social relationships, right? I mean, it sounds like both of you are kind of looking at this direction. I mean, Victor, with your question of, well, who decides? Right. And then Alana, you're like, yeah. And who decides who has to deal with it? <laughs> right. So there's the act of throwing, discarding, but then there's the act of, well, somebody has to pick, pick it up and, and put it somewhere and it has to be placed somewhere. Right. Cause you know, a lot of trash just doesn't disappear. Um, Alana, in your work, you have this article talking about something you call material citizenship. What is that? So that one was, I think, in the Journal of Contemporary Archaeology. It's part of like a special issue on um, waste and material, time and materiality. And so that one was, that article is actually about um, the ways that different people relate to national and international senses of belonging. So I see citizenship as more of this affective way of how do you relate to the world that you're in? And that world is not just national, but also in terms of Bulgaria, it's aspirationally European, Europeanizing. And how do you relate to that through your human relations with material things? And um, I say that material citizenship emerges through human relationships with things and the range of possibilities that those things allow in daily life. So the article focuses on glass. And it came about through my jarring with a bunch of, um, with the, this my host family. I lived part-time with this, um, my, my closest friends, and they were Romani, living in a Romani neighborhood in Sofia, and their relationship to jarring tomatoes. And it was about it wasn't about survival in the, the way that we often think about it. It was about being part of an urban, a Sophia urban um, kind of belonging and having to eat the, the ability to eat sweet tomatoes in the winter. And what I looked at um, through different work um, that was really influential, um, including Yu Sun Young, who I see is on this call, but the relationship of glass and jars and consumption and the, the selling of jarred items on the Bulgarian market really shifted who could buy pre, like pre-preserved jars and who had to keep jarring them themselves in urban space. Because throughout the countryside, people are jarring, you know, their vegetables all the time. But what was kind of interesting about this was this family would go to the local wholesale tomato vegetable market buy tomatoes exactly when they were the cheapest and they would do this urban um, canning process because they had no ties to the countryside so they had to buy the goods but they calculated that they would be more delicious and cheaper to jar them themselves so I was looking at their reuse of glass jars and how that changes and between different groups that were using the glass jars and how that related to people's sense of belonging um, 
to Bulgaria, to urban life. And um, it was just, I think it was about this way that the jars um, are glass. So, you know, there's this way that glass can be seen as breakable, but it wasn't. It was about stability, that these glass jars could be used and reused over and over again to afford not just this material stability of being able to eat tomatoes in the winter, but the sense of uh, a relationship to their own economic precarity that was uh, in a, to stabilize the way that they were able to live in the world was to rely on this materiality to create certain kinds of um, annual tradition and stability for themselves. So looking at glass as, you know, it could be seen as breakable, but in this case, it really wasn't. It was about durability. But let's talk about some of the things, you know, that are, you know, issues of reuse uh, and, and what things are discarded and what objects are reworked or reused and, and what is the greater meaning of that. So, uh, Victor, can you give some examples of the type of waste that is 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 reused and, and how that structures, you know, what is waste and what isn't? Yeah, absolutely. So the case study that I am trying to process now and form it into an article that is the Hungarian uh, recycling company story it was called uh, the translation would be something like secondary material and waste collection trust and the acronym was actually in English it would be the B company like the you know the the, the little bee that's flying around and making the the honey uh, industriously and so but this company would just you know most people when you talk about this in Hungary, they understand that, okay, this was a, a huge network of over 200 uh, trading posts, uh, recycling um, recycling courtyards and, and uh, um, warehouses of secondary materials. But, this, but the story starts in a, uh, in, a, in a much more modest way in the 1950s when it's being set up. Um, it is a branch of a, a very marginal company and the company is called feather trading company so you can imagine how big it was and how much feather it was trading as a secondary material so this company was trading um, feathers letters and, and paper in hungary and um and then there were a, a number of disputes because the, the heavy industry had its own recycling branch the light industry had its own recycling branch and there were some other smaller companies who were responsible for really random materials that had to be recycled. And so there was this huge discussion and a very, um, uh, very angry males between uh, the communist officials that uh, there has to be a merger and there has to be just one company that's dealing with all these secondary materials and who that centralized companies should be able to use all the knowledge and all the information to run this um to run this more successfully. And by the 1960s, this is happening. This is what we see, that these mergers create this one large, uh, huge collection trust that is belonging to uh, the direct control of the Ministry of Light Industry. Mm, yeah, and so the results are quite interesting that they produce. Of course, it's communist statistics, so you can say that maybe it's not true at all. But anyway, uh, what they try to prove to the ministry is that um, about 100% of non-ferrous metals are coming from the recycling process in Hungary by the early 1970s. And, um, and I tried to calculate their annual um, uh, turnover, and that is um, over 220 million US dollars today. That would be, and it's a country of 9 million people, so it's a small country. So we're talking about hundreds of thousands of tons of waste and the selection of it, and the classification of it, and the transportation of it. So it becomes this parallel industry within the huge communist state industrial conglomerate, this secondary industry. And how did they, you know, because you mentioned, and, and I know this, there were campaigns where, where citizens had to participate in recycling. How did they sell recycling? I mean, this goes back to, you know, I'm thinking of issues of citizenship. Was it Was it sold as like, uh, I don't know, patriotism? Was it sold as contributing to the construction of socialism? Or, or how was it, how was it, how were people, you know, encouraged, <laughs> to put it mildly, to recycle? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, there is a debate about it, because some people, uh, especially in the 50s, they, uh, they say that 
no, 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 this one company should be only focusing on the industry because it's so much cheaper to get the recycling, the recyclable materials from the industry. And there should be another company that's focusing on the citizens because it's much more expensive to get the recyclable materials. The quantities are a lot smaller and, you know, there has to be a personal who deal with those customers and it's, you know, it's a lot of trouble, a lot of problems, but it becomes this only this one company. And what I have come up with is that I have purchased a large number of this, you, you know, this po- pocket, uh, pocket calendars from commun. Maybe you had it in the West, very tiny calendars on the one side, you have an advertisement and on the other side you have 1970, whatever. And so I have, bought a series of of those uh, advertising uh, recycling campaigns so yeah i'm so i'm yet to receive the package and i hope i can start analyzing the various um you know motivation factors but generally it was money so whatever you brought there and they targeted yeah um, women men um the elderly uh, younger generation and and lots you know ki- lot of advertisement was directed to kids so yeah collect the collect the waste paper collect the newspapers at home bring it to our outlets we have so many it's everywhere in the country and you're gonna get some pocket money so do that and of course there were organized campaigns as well and Shisha Gile writes a lot about those the the metal collection campaigns and the the newspaper collection campaigns and me and my class won a campaign in 1987 so yeah, we got a re- we got a reward. We got some money. Oh, congratulations, <laughs> Alana! What besides glass? What what other things are dealt with in terms of reuse and recyclables? And 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 what what things are seen as? But because as you said, recycling is now part of a Europe to become European. What are the the items that are recycled that symbolize being European? If, if that makes sense. <laughs> so I think this is a great question. And, and, and you know, I have questions for Victor as, as you were speaking. I have so many questions, but I can answer this and then I can throw a question at Victor. But um, I think there's a big difference between what is symbolically European and what counts towards EU goals. So reuse doesn't count um, because of the way that recycling is measured through um, all of the quantifiable measurements that are taken I won't get into the details, but of the goods that get put on the market and then what ends up at a landfill versus um, what is recycled, reuse actually doesn't figure into those numbers. So this is um, a gap that was also, uh, that I find to be a really important one because it's both um, kind of espoused as ideologically super important, right? Reuse is number one, but figuring out how to measure reuse is really complicated because it kind of, you take these things and they enter the system, but then there's no measurement of them ever coming out. Um, they go on the market, but there's no statistic for how, if for them actually getting materially recycled. So it does reduce landfill waste, but it doesn't get measured in the same way that recycled glass, plastic paper does. So there's that. Um, what kind of, so in some ways, the reuse is maybe in some ideologically more uh, sim- or symbolically more European, but not statistically so. Um, and what I've also, I mean, what I've noticed a lot of what gets reused and sold, there's a, there's a secondhand market for a lot of goods in Bulgaria. And a lot of the people that I was working with, um, there's actually a big gender division. A lot of men would recycle, um, would collect items from one waste stream at a time, meaning one type of waste. And they would go to these sites that were actually old socialist sites. So that's part of my questions for Victor is they would take them in Bulgaria. They're called punktove. They're these collection sites are kind of like holes in the wall. And you would bring the most efficient way to do it is you bring, you know, one day you're like, I'm for six hours. I'm just going to collect cardboard, whatever is sort of hot on the market. And the market is an international market. So, you know, you have these waste collectors that are just, that are really paying attention to an international market and they're, saying, well, the market is good for this or that, you know, that day, or they're going to collect aluminum. And then they would take it all. And then they would take it to this punk and it would get weighed on a manual waste station. And then they would get some pocket cash. And a lot of them would say that these are the exact same sites where people would do these, um, you know, individual domestic uh, 
reselling of goods during socialism, they just never closed and they're now technically not legal, but also not illegal. So they sort of just exist, um, but there really are like holes in the wall and in these side streets. Um, so, and then a lot of women would actually collect things that would be resold at these flea markets. And there's one big one in Sofia called Bitaka and it's on Saturday and Sunday mornings. And a lot of the women I would collect with would find clothing, shoes, um, perfume models, and they would have this whole kind of market assessment. They would like hold it up and, you know, who do you think could wear this? How much could this go for? Like, Alana, is this stylish? You know, and we would find like fashion magazines and they would try to match what they were finding to what was like popular and for young people in the magazine, because most of the women I would go with were senior citizens. So there was this real kind of gendered assessment of what could be reused and what was worthwhile to collect because you're also con constrained by what you can carry. If you don't have um, a vehicle, and a lot of people that I worked with didn't, they would just have these huge Ikea bags and you can really just sort of carry with you what you can hold. But I'm, I mean, I'm curious in Hungary, Victor, do they still have these sites and are they the, the same ones that existed in the socialist period for collecting waste? Yeah, I think the story you, you just told about Bulgaria, that's a very familiar one to me. To be frank, I haven't lived in Hungary for some time, so... I have experienced in two places. Uh, Budapest downtown is not exactly a good location to witness that, but my hometown, that is a dilapidated industrial town with a huge Romani population and probably one of the largest illegal settlements in East Central Europe. It's there where thousands of people live without, you know, healthcare and social security. So I, I was there last summer for a very brief period of time, and and what you just described could be and can be witnessed there on a daily basis. And so I don't know exactly those uh, places, how many of those survived. But yes, in uh, on the internet, you find uh, some companies that they changed the, their mode of existence to a capitalist uh, form of business, but they kept the name from the socialist times. And that's just a funny combination of some name from the 1960s or 70s and then LTD, you know, <laughs> yeah, um, this, I don't think they use the slots or these, you know, hole in the wall thing, but it's more like courtyards, what, what I have seen, but I'm not an expert in that. So this is just someone who was walking in the streets of Hungary. Do either of you know if um, countries in Eastern Europe are trash exporters or importers in the sense of, you know, you have this major global market, particularly in Southeast Asia, where a lot of trash from the United States is essentially put on ships and sent. Do you have a similar process going on in, in Eastern Europe, do you know? Or is this hasn't gotten to the levels of that being necessary? So I just I know the case for Bulgaria. Um, actually, I don't know if you've seen the movie Wally. Uh, so the, one of the artistic, I think, designers or producers was Bulgarian. So there's, the, and it was actually based on this moment in the 2000s when Bulgaria was importing a ton of waste from, from Western Europe, bailing it and moving it to different sites um, across the country. So Bulgaria was a big importer of Western European waste. But then uh, after joining the EU and the years after, they were starting to export um, a lot to China. But this shifted in 2016. So that was the moment when, I mean, I'm, I'm studying this now, what happened to the waste? Because that was a huge crisis. There was a lot of exporting going on. And then there were questions of, well, now that it's not getting exported to China, is it getting incinerated illegally? What's happening to it? And I'm not quite sure. Um, I left the field and I, I, in 2014. So I, I kind of piecemeal my data together every time I go to Bulgaria each summer. But I think Eastern, I don't know about the rest of Eastern Europe. Maybe Victor knows um, about Hungary or other places, but I think there have been kind of shifts um, between the being an importer and then being an exporter when regulations got really tight from the EU. Victor, anything to add on that? Yeah, maybe just a different time frame because uh, what I could say is just what I read in the news when it comes to contemporary issues, as my research is mostly uh, you know, confined to the state socialist period. But the, the, I think the big, big game, so there is this gradual change when it comes to new technology. You know, Khrushchev, he, he introduces this massive chemical program in the 1960s to produce PVC, to produce thermoplastics, to follow the Western path to catch up with America and the Western Europe. 
And of course, the, you know, the direct implication of that and the, the result is that there's more plastic stuff that is being produced in Eastern Europe. And so there is more plastic waste. So, you know, the, and there is also Western technology that's being used. So the Russians, they, they purchase a Tetra pack, you know, uh, assembly lines, and they start to pack their malacca, their, their milk into Tetra pack. And so the Hungarians do the same. They, they purchase uh, or they build these assembly lines themselves. So there is this gradual change. And when you get to 1989, 1991, so when the whole system falls into part, then like when I say everything, of course, it's too universal, but everything changes from one day to another, from year A to year B, from 1989 to 1991. And suddenly you can buy uh, beverage packed in disposable packaging you can go to mcdonald's because there is fast food chains there used to be fast food chains there used to be fast food but oftentimes it was not packed and sold in paper bags and paper packaging with disposable cutlery and all that so all all this just comes in and maybe that's um that is related to Eleanor's stories story that um the european union and its um central aim central goal to curtail um, waste production did not kick in the early 90s these countries are not part of the european union at the time so capitalism capitalism just you know flooded in and started to produce a massive amount of post-consumer waste within a within a snapshot let's talk about some of the 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 how recycling, trash recycling reuse intersect with things like labor and ethnicity and race and class. Alana, tell us about this this racialization of of trash production, but also collection and reuse. The racialization of waste is not an Eastern European story. This has been discussed across the world. Um, and uh, as I said, often in times in discussions of environmental racism. So where uh, waste incineration plants or landfills are located close to communities of color. Um, in Bulgaria, this is also the case. Um, a lot of Romani communities, especially in Sofia, the one um, that I lived and worked in the most is, has over 80,000 people living in it. Uh, it gets wa waste collection is in intermittent, um, perhaps once a week. And in the rest of Sofia, you get daily waste collection. So there's these infrastructural issues um, about actually collecting waste inside of Romani neighborhoods and then the state deeming that the neighborhoods are dirty and not wanting to take responsibility for the fact that waste collection is a municipal endeavor. So, and it's, it's very haphazard inside of Romani communities because they're not off-grid um, as a lot of people kind of talk about them as though they're illegal. Um, in Sofia, they were actually municipal land that a lot of Roma um, were given and were renting in the 1950s. And then the neighborhoods got bigger and bigger. And so some of the houses are not zoned. They're not part of a zoning plan, but the, the streets, um, the infrastructure is still municipal. And so there is actually municipal coverage, but it is very in intermittent. So a lot of these neighborhoods actually rely on this internal neighborhood networks to get rid of waste. And so people are calling their friends with trucks to get rid of it. So you, you see all of this labor that's not regulated waste labor, but it is the labor you need to get trash out of your neighborhood. And then where does it go? Um, so there's that element, but then there's also the element of that this is waste labor is often the labor that people don't wanna do. It's dirty, it's smelly, it's stigmatized. And in the post-socialist period up through now, it is minimum wage. And at the time um, when I was working, I worked as a street sweeper the women were getting paid 400 leva a month, which is equivalent to about 200 euro, and it is not a, at all a living wage. But it comes with healthcare, and it's a contract. It's a, it has a contract, so it's both a steady job, but also a low-paid job. And there was, I, I think, on the the company would it say that 99% of um, street sweepers in Bulgaria are Romani, and I'd say 95% of them are are women. Um, and I actually didn't realize how unique that was to have um, this be such a gendered labor sector. So it's not just racialized. It's also this sort of intersectional class, race, gender um, conglomeration that emerges through this waste labor. And it's often very, um, there's generations that do it because of um, generational issues of 
discrimination, of socialist era practices that uh, relied also on um, manual Romani labor and uh, didn't kind of prioritize Roma communities getting educated. This is like a long historical practice and it, it comes to fruition in this post-socialist, post-EU accession period where this is the population that is doing the most low paid labor. Victor, do you have in, in the research you've done, have you seen similar issues of, of labor and class and these other gender? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I try to avoid the ethnicity and race problematic because to be frank, from an Eastern European perspective, it's very difficult to relate uh, to that in a, in a very constructive way. As you know, you're, when you're coming from Eastern Europe, you're a second class citizen. Oftentimes you're perceived as a, low, a human of a low, lower value to Western Europeans. I, I have lived in the UK and I've been labeled as a dirty Pole. But Poland is a cool country, but I'm from Hungary. So, um, so that is something that you, you, come up, you, you, you come across very often. And it's and there are also these racial and ethnic tensions within within Eastern Europe between various nationalities. Very complex, you know, puzzle of, of nations uh, trying to coexist. And there is also the Romani question and other and other very very important questions. So it is is difficult to deal with from my perspective. Who is who is being racialized? Who is being oppressed? Eastern Europeans as a whole, because that wouldn't be you know an untrue. Um, statement or an untrue or, or a, or a non-dignified research question or just part of the society. So what I what I was trying to address, what I'm trying to address, is is more of a general question of wealth and and poverty. And I'm also trying to kind of evade the question of class because in communism uh, there is the number of people who can afford uh, a, a living standard that is kind of resembling Western European standards. And I'm not talking about United States here or Australia or anything like that, just, you know, Austrian living standards. Uh, there is, the number of people is so small in these tiny little Eastern European satellite countries that I'm not sure if that, from my perspective, who's trying to, you know, map out an entire industry that would, that would be very helpful. So I just generally, I'm generally trying to apply um, the image of of what comes from the fact that these countries were poor and they had to utilize as much as possible to to rechannel their waste to to put their industrial plants into symbiosis systems uh, as as soon as they could as fast as they could and and it didn't ha it didn't work out and why it didn't work out what was missing what was the problem how these dialogues and discourses unfolded. So this is this these are the questions I'm trying to address. You know, when we look at places like Eastern Europe and particular countries or even the former Soviet Union, you know, there's some we tend to look at it in terms of like, you know, big politics or economics or these other questions. And and looking at it from the perspective of waste is for lack of a better term unconventional. <laughs> so so how has your research caused you to view Eastern European society or the, you know, Bulgaria or Hungary or even the former Soviet Union differently, Alana? It's a really good question. Um, differently, I guess, from, from what? Let, well, let, let's, let me put it this way. Before you started like looking at these you know, issues, particular issues of your research, you had learned about Eastern Europe. You, you know, you teach it. Um, et cetera, et cetera. You have a narrative, right? And and I'm I'm curious how how looking at this the society like a Bulgaria from the viewpoint of trash and the people who deal with it provides you with a different narrative or or causes forces you to revise that narrative you had before. It's kind of like why should we care? <laughs> oh, the, the, that's the hard question. Why should we care? I think. I think this is a, I mean, this is very important. For me, I was always struggling with um, the pushback I would get when talking about um, race in Eastern Europe. And a lot of Eastern European scholars from the region say this is an Americanization of a problem that's not, this is not a local emic category. Race doesn't exist here. 
And I think that waste actually provides a lens into looking at race. And I, I do believe it's, a, it's race, not ethnicity, um, that is at stake for um, Romani populations in Bulgaria. And I do agree with Victor that their racialization happens across Europe. So it's not to say that this, these things are spectrum. They're not, they're not based in the color of your skin. So I write a lot through the lens of um, black feminism. And I, I find actually um, Bernard Hess's work to be really important. And he talks about the co colonial constitution of race. It's not about you know phenotype, it's about power dynamics. And so I think Victor's completely right. Thinking about East Europe versus West Europe falls into that category of how power hierarchies produce the concepts of racial hierarchy. Um, and then how that takes root in the in practice is really what my research is about. And I find that when I go into the archives, but also when I do interviews about waste, what emerges is these racial hierarchies being articulated in forms that would never be articulated if I asked people directly about Roma or if I asked them about inequality, because there's a lot of hesitancy to talk about it in terms of um, race and hierarchy. But when you start to look at the records of who's doing waste, how good workers are categorized, how hard it is to find workers, um, when you do oral interview, oral history interviews with, um, I, I talked to a lot of elderly Bulgarians about who did the labor and who does labor now. These narratives of racialization over time emerge and are, I see race as, I see waste as a site where racial hierarchy actually materializes. And I think that was one of my sort of struggles and um, goals of the project was to locate race as a material phenomenon, not just this thing that exists through, you know, policy of we need to, you know, help in the EU policy is all about like integration of minority groups. And I, I find that kind of neoliberal jargon to not really speak to what happens. And waste is this very particular site where you see it emerge through labor practices, through issues of um, proximity to waste sites, but also in the um, archival record. And that's what I'm trying to trace out now. Uh, Victor, how does, how does looking at how trash and recycling was done give you a different narrative for state socialism? Yeah, you know, thinking maybe I'm a bad researcher, but it informs my presumptions in many ways. So I think, I think the most important uh, question for me as a historian and scholar of Eastern Europe is that, you know, detach yourself from your feelings towards your home country and home region, that the question is not that whether or not you want to live there. Is it comfortable to live there? Is it, is it reasonable to live there? And can, you know, is it, is it good for you? Because for me, it's not a good place to be and live. It's a really good place to do research and travel. And so, but um, the question is not about me. The question is not about my preferences. The question is what happened and to interpret that story. And I think my interpretation is that it's not, well, this is not anything new uh, to a certain point, I hope, uh, that it's not black and white. It's not about communism versus capitalism. It's about two distinctive ways to approach trash and approach secondary materials. And what can we learn from the way the communists were approaching uh, those materials? And I think that's, that can be very interesting. And it, it is very interesting in any past society. You know, you can go back in time and start researching waste, trash making, discards. It's exciting in any human society. My choice of society is communism. And I've tried to find the particular particularities that are that it, that make it distinguished and different from possibly many other um, human civilizations or societies. And I also try to read the resources with the eye. How could this be used in the current global environmental crisis? Yeah. Well, this this actually leads right to my last question, and that is, what can we learn from from these, you know, state socialist societies? I mean, you know, Victor, you're dealing with it specifically, you know, in the '60s and '70s, 
And, and Alana, during the transition period where you get all of this, you know, what was once sacred is now profane. So what can we learn, uh, you know, especially since now, since the, excuse the dogs, uh, especially now, since there's so much discussion about, you know, environment, climate change, what can be done about it. Uh, a lot of it is through a very, uh, you know, I would say, and I'm assuming you both would probably agree, a neoliberal model of dealing with waste. Um, so what can we learn from that, that past in Eastern Europe? I think one of the most important things is thinking about um, waste management from the site of production. And I think this is something that comes up in the, um, I mean, in Victor's work in the, in the question about um, socialist waste practices is that the, the idea of waste and what will come is in many ways, the relationship of production to consumption to discard. And I think in this neoliberal capitalist moment, it's all about what do we do when things are already discarded? How do we handle it? There's almost this panic, like we got, we got, we got to keep it out of the landfill. We got to meet our numbers. We got to recycle this. And so I think there's a lot to learn about what it would mean to look at this from a different temporal period perspective to bake it into um, the means of production. And I think that's a lesson from socialism that we can extract and use. And then another, I think, important point, and I think it's coming to the fore in uh, international politics today, is seeing environmentalism as part of larger social phenomenon, that this isn't something that can be extracted from social worlds and um, hierarchies and human relationships, but that these things all go together and they have been, been going together for centuries that you can't have um, environmental progress and sustainability if you're gonna sustain a hierarchical status quo. So the question of what change means and what should be sustained and what should be um, radically transformed is where I'm hoping my work um, will go based on what I've researched because that's really the question is how do you, I mean, the environment matters, but so do the people that do its labor. And we can't have one at the expense of the other. Victor, what are some lessons you can, since you're, you're thinking about this as well, what are some lessons from state socialism? Yeah, I, love, I loved what Elena said. And I, I think those are very, very important points. And uh, well, uh, I don't want to go too sentimental or too philosophic in, in many ways, but I think one of the core problems with capitalism and, and our current and most of the current societies uh, all over the globe, and the one I'm living in Finland too, that um, wealth is associated um, someone's uh, someone's richness and, and money and possessions are often associated to with some uh, human value. So inherently, people think that okay, that guy has you know he he made a great business. Probably he's a great guy, and I, I also see it on the level of nation states and 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 countries that. Uh, rich countries in economic history writing, you know, the big question is why Eastern Europe didn't catch up? Like it was the only question you could ask. For. And and so inherently my problem is, and this is very, very philosophical problem. It's not a historical problem. Why people want to get rich? I don't understand. And call me whatever you want and think I'm an idiot. But I think going poor and staying poor it's not necessarily reducing your quality of life up to, of course, a certain level, and it's a very complex question. But I don't think we necessarily have to go ahead. I think we could take a U-turn and go a little bit back, take a few steps back and think what happened in past societies. I'm seconding Elena here in that need to, to revisit past societies. How did they relate to their environments? And this is happening. So there are some positive signs, but... I'm very concerned for, for the coming generation. That was Ilana Resnick and Victor Paul. Ilana Resnick is an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She's currently working on a book manuscript about waste and race in Europe based on over three years of fieldwork on Bulgarian city streets, in landfills, Romani neighborhoods, executive offices, and at the Ministry of the Environment. You can get a taste of her research in a forthcoming piece in the American Anthropologist entitled The Limits of Resilience, Managing Waste in the Racialized Anthropocene. 
Victor Paul is a researcher at the Department of Cultures at the University of Helsinki in Finland. He also serves as coordinator at the Helsinki Environmental Humanities Hub. His first book, Technology and the Environment in State Socialist Hungary and Economic History, was published in 2017 by Palgrave Macmillan. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, thanks to my high excellencies, high wellborns and noblenesses for your continued patronage, and you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Mr. Thompson calls the waiter, order steak and baked potato. He leaves the bone and gristle and he never eats the skin. The busboy comes and takes it with a cough, contaminates it, puts it in a can with coffee grounds and sardine tins. And the truck comes by on Friday and carts it all away. A thousand trucks just like it are converging on the bay. Oh, garbage, 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 garbage. We're filling up the seas with garbage, garbage, garbage. What will we do when there's no place left to put all the garbage? Mr. Thompson starts his Cadillac, winds it down the freeway track, leaving friends and neighbors in a hydrocarbon haze. He's joined by lots of smaller cars, all sending gases to the stars, there to form a seething cloud that hangs for 30 days. The sun blinks down into it with an ultraviolet tongue Turns it into smog, then it settles in our lungs Oh, garbage, 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 garbage We're filling up the sky with garbage What will we do when there's nothing left to breathe but garbage? Getting home and taking off his shoes, he settles with the evening news. While the kids do homework with a TV in one ear. While Superman for the thousandth time tells.